We have props. <laughs> All right. If you would, um, turn with me in your Bibles while we're getting set up here. Go to Joshua chapter 4. We're going to shift gears a little bit for you. We'll get to John 17 in a second. But Joshua chapter 4. And um, do want to let you guys know, I don't have a copy of the book. We, we, Matt and I have written an amazing book called The Dream King. <laughs> How the dream of Martin Luther King is being fulfilled to heal racism in America. What we're going to share tonight is like the tip of the iceberg of what's in the book. We really encourage you to get it. It's going to equip you to, one, know how to pray for the nation, understand uh, and connect to the unfinished business of other people in this nation who've been doing powerful things and uh, contending for revival and healing the racial divide and uh, contending for a culture of life in our country. So... Please check that out on the way out. We'll stick around for a little bit, sign books. But uh, beyond just coming here for that, we're here because we've been praying to come to Illinois. We've been praying to come to the Chicago area for about three or four years, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that. And uh, we just consider this an answer to prayer. So I just want to thank all the pastors in the house for just bringing us here, you know, Pastor West, Pastor, uh, Pastor Mike, and other leaders that are here. We're just so honored. To, that you would have us here today. So, <clears throat> Joshua chapter 4, starting at verse 4, says this, So Joshua called the 12 men who were appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you. So when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you should tell, say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now, if God says something once that's good enough for me, it's good enough for you, right? He says the exact same thing twice. Not in another book of the Bible, not even another chapter, but later on in this very same chapter, chapter 4. Go all the way down to verse 19. Now the people came up to the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and kept at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those 12 stones where they had taken up from the, from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry, on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Powerful verse of Scripture, right? Now turn with me to uh, John 17. This is the red letter stuff. This is Jesus talking, right? John 17, and this is Jesus letting us listen in on this prayer meeting. He and the Father, it's like a, a, a shared earlier service. It was like when I was growing up, six-year-old boy, I messed up with my, with my mother. <laughs> and uh, she about had it with me. She said, you're going to sit right here and I'm going to pray. So she starts to pray. And as she would pray, she would say, now, Lord, I've only known him six years. And I don't know if he's going to make it to seven. I can live a whole long life without him. It's just me and you. That's all I care about. As long as we're right, Lord, you can take him back if you want to. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, no, God, please don't answer that prayer. I do right. I'm sorry. 
but she was getting her point across, right? I almost feel like that's what this verse, John 17, is about. Jesus is getting his point across to us. But really, it was really important to his heart. Listen to how many times he talks about oneness and unity. Not with just us today, but also connecting to what he started in our yesterday. With the previous apostles. And also the prophets who were gone before them. John 17, starting at verse 19, he says this. He says, for their, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, talking about the 12 disciples, but for all those who believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is praying for you. That they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that that the world may believe that thou didst send me, and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in what? Unity. That the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. So Jesus, we pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you right now. We just ask you, send the helper. Chicago needs help. Illinois needs help. God, our nation needs help right now. God, we have so many polar extreme opposites, whether it's ideological differences, class divisions, racial divisions, whatever. God, we need your help right now. So we invoke the help of the helper. You said that you would send the helper. Would you send help from heaven? Would you send a baptism of your spirit once again? And use a united church to heal a divided nation once again. Because at the rate we're going, God, we're really making a mess of everything. We have more wisdom. We have more earthly wisdom, more information flying than ever. And the church has more political influence and less divine influence than ever. God, it's one thing to be able to say, Rise and be healed in Jesus' name. It's another thing to say, here's silver and gold, take that. God, we need help. What he powerful on high. Left wing, right wing, the whole bird is sick. We need the dove back in the church, God. So come in great power and great glory and do what only you could do for real. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, so. Some of you may be wondering what this old pot is up here for. This has been in my family for about, I don't know, at least seven, maybe eight generations. Close to 200 years old. Some, some, people, some historians put it older than 200 years old. It was used by the slaves in my family for cooking. They also used it for washing clothes. Matter of fact, my dad, five years old, used it for washing clothes. He said back in the day, they didn't have washing machines. He said, so the agitator was me. I was the agitator, he said. He's five years old, and he said he would trump clothes in the pot while his great-grandmother would tell him the stories of how the pot was used. That's why this I Have a Dream speech means so much to me. Martin Luther King, I know it's Black History Month and all, and we talk about this. But this speech, you're going to learn, that's actually something that was birthed out of a prayer meeting. And you're going to hear an amazing story of how God is intricately involved, not just our little story, but this story it's not the end. It's the means to the end to get you to be involved with what God is doing right now in the earth. He is going to answer his son's prayer. He is. 
and we're going to be part of that answer. And we want to be on the right side of history of it. Amen. So if you could play that I Have a Dream speech for me. That's that one little clip from the Mall of Washington. So powerful. They're on the steps of the I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. Powerful, powerful speech, right? It's amazing. And so I love this speech so much because I'm one of those sons of former slaves. <laughs> and this possibly had passed down from generation to generation to generation in our family. And it comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana, which I don't think is a mistake either, because God is the God of Providence. Matter of fact, the Puritans used to call God just that, Providence. Providence is, according to Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, Providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things in apparent accidents. How many times have you been heading somewhere and you swerve, you miss something, and then somebody else hits a behind or whatever, but you, it was because you were praying before that, all of a sudden, the hand of Providence was watching over all your affairs. Things you forgot about and then somebody else picked up the slack or whatever. You have no idea how much Providence has been involved in every single little detail of your life. You know, pre preventing accidents, getting himself in involved in wars, preventing wars. God is this amazing history writer. And he's using you to write a story. He told me years ago, he said, William, pray and ask, you, ask that you will be the pen and that the Holy Spirit will be the ink. And I'm going to take you by my hand and use you to write a love letter to a lost and dying world. I prayed that way for many years, but that's what God wants to do. That's what he's doing right now in many of our lives. And, but the way he does it is by building on top of memories. God loves to remember. Loves to remember. So you see there in Joshua chapter 4, that's the first time that uh, the word memorial was ever mentioned. Memorials, when you have the, the Washington Monument, that's the memorial. You have the, uh, other, other memorials that are around in different state locations or whatever, state capitals. We have memorials. All that came from the Bible, Joshua chapter 4. And you saw the very first memorials were these stones. It's piles of rocks. And who, what, why were those rocks there? Well, turns out there was this whole generation that hadn't seen the Red Sea part. Previous generation, there were two people from the previous generation that were still alive. That was Joshua and Caleb. There was a whole generation that grew up in the wilderness. And every day, they were basically living off the sacrifice of everybody else who had gone before them. They didn't grow up in slavery. They grew up in the desert for 40 years. But every day, they had miracles because somebody else stepped out in faith. And every day for 40 years, they had clothes that never wore out. They had shoes that never wear. They ate little cakey white stuff every day that came from heaven called manna every single day. In other words, the supernatural was just normal for them because somebody else made a sacrifice. So they go into the promised land. They're heading into the promised land. They get into this one spot. When they get there, 
Like God says, you know what? I should have had a V8. So all the older people got that joke. But <laughs> the baby boomers got that joke. The millennials like, what's a V8? <laughs> it's an old commercial from back in the day. But anyway, the deal is, God says, you know what? There's gonna, there was a generation after them that I don't, didn't see the Red Sea part. And there's a generation after them that's not going to see this Jordan River part. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab stones as a memorial of what I've done. Grab one for each tribe, and I want you to pile them up on one side of the Jordan River, even in the middle of the Jordan River, and on the other side of the Jordan River. He said, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later on saying, what do these stones mean to you? You should tell them, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. And the same God that part the Red Sea is the same God that part the Jordan River, and they'll part whatever circumstance for you. That's what this kettle has been for my family. It's been a memorial stone, basically saying that the same God that ended slavery, the same God that parted slavery, he'll part whatever circumstance for us. Right? And so it's been passed down from generation to generation. So to help you understand, see, God's in the memories. We're made in his image and likeness. We love memories too. We do. You know why I say that? What is Facebook all about? All your memories, all your pictures. Instagram, what is, all, what is it all about? Right? And the big thing now that's making a big resurgence is what? Scrapbooks. Whenever there's a fire, like the fires that happened in Redding, California, people lost everything. They lost houses, they lost cars, but you know the things they wept over? They're scrapbooks. Because it housed their memories. Now, if I were to hang you my scrapbook, you'd look at some of those pictures and you'd laugh. And some of those afros and some of those jerry curls. Good night. I don't know how many couches we messed up back in the day with all that juice coming off of it. Tell the truth and shame the devil. You don't want to tell the truth. I'll tell you. Or you might start laughing at those polyester suits, which are coming back. Don't throw them out just yet. But if I got that same scrapbook back, I might start weeping because I remember the battles I fought with this person, the things I overcame with that person. Listen, God is the same way. He loves to remember. So much so that when he saw those pile of rocks, when he saw those 12 stones, he didn't see 12 rocks. He, he didn't see a pile of rocks. You know what he saw? He saw the 12 great grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow him. And then on those old stones was invoked the memory of the man who became God's friend. And he remembered his covenant, and he went after the next generation. That's what generational blessings are all about. Everybody talks about generational curses. Yeah, they're real. They're powerful. They go to three and four generations, sometimes ten. But listen, generational blessings go to a thousand generations. That means basically forever. And the blessings are way more powerful than the curses. So you're going to see that in this story, how God is weaving together this powerful storyline and connecting this all together. And the way God does this providentially in the New Testament is in Ephesians 2 and 10 where he says, we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. Where workmanship is the word poema. Everybody say poema. Poema. So you know what poem in there, right? So you guys poem. There is song. But even greater than that, the word poema was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor in a fabric. See, God has a tailor-made plan, tailor-made destiny, tailor-made journey for your life. But he weaves it in connection to what he promised the people who went on before us. So you're going to hear that in the story. You're going to hear these uncoincidental coincidences take place too. Uh, William Temple once said, when I pray, the coincidences happen. When I 
don't pray they don't happen. <laughs> now, pray the coincidence doesn't happen. Well, don't pray they don't. In other words, when you start praying, providence kicks in, and all of a sudden, these uncoincidental coincidences begin to take place. That's what you're going to hear in this story. But anyway, so I hadn't thought much about this part until I went to a little conference, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Just called off of an extended time of prayer and fasting, praying for revival, praying for our nation, studying about the first and second great awakening during that time period. And uh, I hear a message by a man named Dutch Sheets that, that changed my life. He basically said this. He was talking about how um, when two different things, when they come together, they don't create an addition of power, but a multiplicity of power. It's called synergy. Synergy. Scientists say if you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. That's synergy. Now, that's in the natural. So God has set up something in the natural so that when we work together, it produces not an additional results, but an exponential release of power. Isn't that amazing? But spiritually, one could put a thousand of flight and two could put what? 10,000 of flight. That's synergy. So think about it. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting agreement in prayer between the old and the young, male, female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. But then Dutch said something that was so powerful, so profound, and this is what rocked my world. He said this, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. Talked about how he's at his alma mater, his Bible school, and he's leading the student body in prayer. And while he's leading them in prayer, he has, he's having a conversation with God at the same time. Preachers, y'all know what I'm talking about. Well, you want I'm talking to you now, the Lord is talking to me about the next thing he wants, wants me to say, wants, the next thing he wants me to take out. That's the kind of conversation that we have. Not that we're schizophrenic, but we have this voice. We have voices in our heads when you preach, right? <laughs> and so Dutch is going on, and he hears the Lord say to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And Dutch says, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not going to talk to the dead. And the Lord said to him, but his prayers aren't dead. They're still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I made a covenant with him, and I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. It's like with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God raises up Abraham, promises a nation, raises up Isaac, then a Jacob, breaks that Jacob thing off that boy, names him Israel because he promised that this man back here a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham because God loves to remember. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, King David, when David and Jonathan were coveted friends, Jonathan and David made this covenant with each other so that when David became king, Jonathan would live in the palace. That was unheard of. The first thing people would do at that time would kill off the family members of the previous regime or run them off. Right? Uh, give an example of that. like Fidel Castro, when he took over in Cuba, the first thing he did as a dictator was kill, the 500, kill 500 family members of the previous regime. So he never have to look over his back during his administration. So that's what people did back then, but Jonathan and David made this covenant relationship. The Bible says their hearts were knit together, but Jonathan dies, and then David says something that's so profound in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He says, who of the household of Saul can I show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Then he rephrases it, and he says it like this in verse 3. 
Who in the household of Saul can I show the kindness of God for Jonathan's sake? In other words, this is what the kindness of God looks like. So they go find this broken and busted up kid named Mephibosheth who knew nothing about the covenant. They bring him into the house and he becomes not just a visitor, not just a guest, but he becomes basically the son of King David because David is still under the influence of his father's devotion. Why? Because that's what the kindness of God looks like. Listen, that's what generational blessings look like. God has a lock on device that's connected to you that comes from somebody else's prayers, targeting you in the place of prayer. And God sets a lock on device to you and saying, I'm going to get that Mephibosheth. Listen, he's not done with the south side of Chicago. He's not done with Inglewood. Listen, God is listening to the prayers of all those people. And there's a lock on device coming in all that is going on. He's not done. Care what it's looking like. He's not done. There's a lock on device for this Eric because he still remembers the prayers of your great, 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 great grandmother, your auntie, your mother, your father. He still remembers those prayers. But when Dutch said that, I got gripped. I got wrecked because I remember this pot in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. Secretly, they used it for prayer. They secretly used it for prayer because, you know, back during that time, slavery was what they called a peculiar institution, and it was very peculiar. For instance, they wanted slaves to be Christians back then because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves, be obedient to you, the masters, if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know that's not true. It's not a work salvation. It's a great salvation. Saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. Know that. But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. But the irony is that while they wanted them to be Christians, they did not want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. And if they got hopeful, they try to run away. So this man would literally beat them if he heard them praying. Give an example of how cruel slavery was back during that time. We had the story passed down in our family of a family member named Uncle Willie, this great, great, great uncle in our family who was a slave on that plantation in Lake Providence. He decided to go fishing but didn't ask. And so when he came back to the plantation, the overseer and the slave master decided to make an example out of him. So they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. They took a whip that was shredded and put rocks and nails and glass in the whip, something like the cat of nine tails is what they created. And they beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, they took the lard or grease and put it on a sheet and wrapped it around his body to be like one big band-aid. They put grease on the sheet so they wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back and do more damage. But in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was on this plantation. But listen, these folks were Christians, and they loved Jesus, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they would go into a barn late at night where everyone was asleep on the plantation to make sure that their, their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure that it wasn't heard, they used this pot. This is the very pot that they used. They would sneak into the barn late at night with this pot, and then they would take the pot and turn it upside down and then prop it up with rocks so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then 
get on the ground and they would prostrate themselves on the ground, put themselves flat on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. I'm sorry, I've shared this like twice today, but around a third time, it starts to get to me. Listen, somebody pray for you. Somebody pray for you. Two weeks ago, two months ago, maybe it was 200 years ago. I know 2,000 years ago, I talk about my Uncle Willie who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But Jesus Christ, the greatest intercessor who still lives to make intercession for us, he freely gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, he's healing history. And by his blood, he has united us. I'm thinking about what this man is preaching, about agreeing with the prayers of those who have gone before us. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, to whom much is given, much is required. Reminds me of this dream that I had once. I was getting ready to speak to a bunch of Young college students, a bunch of millennials. The night before I spoke to him, I had a dream, and I said to him, I'm not some old man with a old rusty pot and a cute story. I'm a steward of a legacy, and so are you. You trivialize God's stories and, and look at them with disdain because you don't honor the history of God's faithfulness with his friends. Take up your cross and take your place in history. That's what I said in that dream. Listen, God's looking for a new generation to take responsibility for where things are right now in the place of prayer. They had a slave master back during that day that prevented them from praying. We have a slave master today. You know what his name is? Social media, Facebook, entertainment, MTV, BET. God's looking for a new generation of people to resource the prayer bowls in heaven. Not trying to guilt you into prayer. I'm just saying there's so much freedom in intercession. Prayer will change your life. Believe me, it's changed mine. So, shared that with Dutch, and he said, God, you really want me to take some old cast iron pot around the country to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? He said he's praying for confirmation because we were praying about doing a prayer journey together. Dutch said his Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the bowls before the altar. <laughs> so here's this cooking pot that's called muffled prayers, the same way as a bowl in heaven, Revelation 5 and 8. So there are bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Listen, every time you pray, it's collected in these golden bowls in heaven. There's a golden prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over this city. There's a prayer bowl over Illinois. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for some people to resource the prayer bowls once again. So, so there's a group of people back then, not just black Christian slaves, but also white Christian abolitionists. Those white Christian abolitionists knew that if, if any person was a slave, was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. They laid their lives down for each other. Many of them had their houses burned. They were shot. They were killed. They were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. One of them was a man named uh, Elijah P. Lovejoy. He was from this town right here, Alton, Illinois. 
And when a slave was beat to death in this town, uh, nobody else cared about it. So Elijah P. Lovejoy decided to become an abolitionist and took a strong stand against slavery. Angry mobs would come to his house to threaten to kill him, burn his house down eventually. But he went before the city council to ask them for protection from these angry mobs that were trying to silence him on the issue of slavery. And they said, sir, if you would just stop preaching what you're preaching, that would be your protection. Elijah P. Lovejoy stood before him and starts to weep. He says, forgive my tears. I shed that not for myself, but for you and others. I cannot stop preaching what I'm preaching or printing what I'm printing because I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man, I fear God. And if I fall, my grave shall be made here in Alton, Illinois. His words proved to be prophetic. The next day, an angry mob came to his house, burned his house down, and as he ran out to escape the flames, he was shot and killed. That man's life is a memorial. God has not forgotten about him. And he helped me understand something. So those abolitionists knew that if any person was a slave or was a Christian, regardless of the race, they knew that he knew that person was a, their, their brother because they had the blood of Jesus flowing through. That's why I love to tell people, see, if my ancestors have been Muslims or Buddhists, listen, I have no connection to this populist history. But because they were Christians, listen, none of these, my ancestors and forefathers, they're yours too. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney as you are Martin Luther King and William Seymour and C.H. Mason. And when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, something powerful happens. The oil for Psalm 133 begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. So back then there was a Supreme Court law called Dred Scott which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. But because God sent revival, that law got broken in our nation. Got broken in the hearts of everybody. That law said that the, the, the African or the black man didn't have any rights as a person in the courtroom. But revival happens. God sends the first great awakening and the second great awakening and brings a revival that is so powerful, people in the north are willing to fight for people who don't look like them in the south. That's why I'm daring to believe the same God who broke the power of dress God. Listen, he could break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put it into systemic poverty. He can shut down all the systems of injustice that bring about systemic racism. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can end all the stuff that's happened with the crack houses and the inner city and all the stuff that's happened with the, the opiate crisis that's breaking out in the suburbs. He's just looking for a generation of people who will drop their agendas, come together, and believe together in the place of prayer. And it's so connected to the life it's our time, deep time to go into it. But listen, God weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood in our nation. It grieves his heart. I was in prayer one day and the Lord said this to me. He said, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in this nation? I begin to get his heart about all the injustices in our nation from the division, racism, all the shedding of innocent blood with that. Listen, everything, God weeps. The same, listen, the same God who wept over uh, what happened with Laquan McDonald here. The same God who wept over Philando Castile is the same God who wept over the five police officers that were killed in Dallas. He weeps over what happened the other day in, in Aurora, Illinois, with the five people who were killed. 
and he weeps over 60 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. The reason why is this, because when the people that you cannot see become optional, it's inevitable that many of the people that we do see will become marginalized even to the place of elimination. So a lot of people say black lives matter, and I understand that, I get that. Some people say all lives matter, I understand where they're coming from, I get that. Some people even saying white lives matter, but God is saying drill down deeper, life matters. And when we stop devaluing life and human existence, my God, I'm praying for your governor. But listen, up to nine years while a woman's dilating and saying you, you can end the life of a child, you start bringing that on, I'm telling you, there may be people who are saying you can abort a baby up to one year outside of the womb. They're actually teaching that in some classrooms. What I'm saying is we have to value life in the beginning, and then we'll be able to value everybody's life. So the Lord began to speak to me about this, how he's raised up this new breed, this new generation of people who are going to contend for a civil rights movement that included everybody this time. And they did that through this dream that I had about the dream of Martin Luther King. In the dream, um, on my way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church with a friend of mine, Lou Ingram, going there for a prayer meeting in the dream. But before we could get there, we had to go to this other house and pick up Dr. King. So in this dream, of course, it's a dream. So Dr. King is alive and he comes out of his house, but he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. He throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in a dream, I think to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> Shows you how carnal I am, right? Even in my dreams, I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse. The bag will make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I go to pick up the baggage. But before I could, I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no. Do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in our nation. I wake up. I'm in the dream. I start to weep, but then I didn't realize it. My, my pillow was soaked with tears. I was weeping the whole night in intercession. Didn't realize it. I shared the dream with my friend Lou Engel. He begins to weep. We're like, God, what's the interpretation? And I'm like, God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for you. And I knew what the Lord was talking about. The black handles represented how I, as an African-American, had been carrying my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I knew what the Lord was talking about because I knew what it was like at 13 years old to come out of a convenience store with myself and three friends and a carload full of white guys who didn't know us, started joyriding, uh, started calling us the N-word, saying they were going to shoot and kill us, and they chased us for over an hour and a half. They were just joyriding, but we were terrified. I know it is like at 19 years old to be falsely accused of shoplifting by a plainclothes cop who followed me in the store when he couldn't find anything on me. He said ugly things to me and tried to provoke me into a fight just so he can have a reason to take me in or rough me up. I know what it's like in my 30s when I bought my, my, my first new home in a nice neighborhood, the same police officer for the first three months, every week would stop me for just driving while black. I know what all that feels like. But you know what I've done? For everybody who lived in that region that was white or was a police officer, I took those three incidents and I put it on every person that looked like them, right? Before I even had one conversation with them. So it's Revelation 12 where it says, the devil is the, what, the accuser of the brethren. 
That word accuser is a, comes from the root word kategoros. Is where we get the word category in English. In other words, the diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other. So when we have one bad experience or hear of one bad experience about one person or one situation, we put that on everybody else before we ever get a conversation with it. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness, get rid of your resentment, get rid of your unforgiveness, get rid of your guilt manipulation, get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can be revival and justice for everybody. But the question for all of us now is this, what color is your baggage? Whatever it is, get rid of it because we need each other. Because only a united church can kill a divided nation. So we have these memorial stones that have gone out before us. Dr. King and others. Elijah P. Lovejoy in this region. God still remembers those prayers. And he's weaving something together. Why do I know that? Because he connected me with an amazing friend. This guy's one of my best friends. Come on up, Matt Lockett. Matt Lockett, he's the leader of the Justice House of Prayer in Washington, D.C. He's over Bound for Life, been doing that for over 15 years. Uh, one of my favorite intercessors to pray with. Give it up for Matt Lockett. Well, good evening. Can I just ask for a show of hands if you're a pastor at a local church here? I'd like to see who's in the house tonight. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for, for being here tonight. I, I uh, had the privilege to, to be with Will in a handful of settings like this, and some big, some not so big, but where multiple churches are coming together and saying, you know what, it, this has to start somewhere. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do what we need to do to get together. And to, to get in the same pace. So I just want to say thank you. Appreciate that. I want to honor uh, you as pastors and leaders for being here tonight. Well, what I would like to do is just kind of pick up on the story where Will left off. And begin to tell my part of a story of how it dovetails in with Will's story with the kettle. And uh, uh, I want to kind of start at this moment in time. I, I, the Lord taught me a phrase here a couple of years ago, and I've learned it's, it's so true. He told me moments matter. I've just learned that, that everything can change in a moment. Your life can change in a moment. A nation can change in a moment. A God moment, that is. And um, I want to talk about a moment in time where literally my life changed. So Will had the dream about Dr. King. And uh, he shared that with his friend, Lou Engle. How many of you know who Lou Engle is? Okay, a few hands in here. Um, Lou is known for doing these large-scale prayer gatherings called The Call. And he's been doing those for about 18, 19 years. The largest one was uh, Labor Day weekend of 2001. About 400,000 people showed up on the National Mall to pray. It's pretty amazing. And so many, many uh, similar events like that. But he shared the dream of Dr. King with Lou. And Lou said, well, we're going to do a prayer gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day. Bring the kettle. Come and tell the story. I want you to come and uh, do that there. And so that was January 17th, 2005. And that's really where my part of the story begins. But I want to back up just a little bit, exactly one year to the day on January 17th, 2004. Exactly one year. Um, I lost my dad. My father passed away. And something really interesting happens. 
when you lose a mom and a dad is that where you've always been the one that hears the stories, you've always been the one who receives uh, what they have to give, the experiences and the stories that they have, when you lose them, that mantle, it's like a, it's like a stewardship then passes to you. You become the steward of the storyline. Does that make sense? That suddenly, like, just think about it for a minute, how much you depended on mom and dad, and then suddenly when they're gone, now you carry the weight of that responsibility, and you have to make some hard decisions in that moment. You have to start asking yourself, like, what's the story that I'm supposed to tell with my life? Now, see, I'm a Christian, and that, that means I, I am a believer. I believe that my life means something. I believe that at some point in the past, God had a dream, and then at a, at a moment in time, he wrapped flesh and bone around it, and I'm that dream. You are that dream. You, you didn't begin uh, uh, when, when mom and dad said so. You began as a dream in the heart of God. Think about that. I love to tell young people that, that you're not an accident. There's far too many young people that have been told, almost jokingly by their parents, that you weren't planned, you were an accident. Listen, God has a plan. Okay, And so <clears throat> when the steward of the storyline comes to you, you have to start asking yourself, like, what is the meaning? What is the story that I'm supposed to be telling with my life? And because I'm a Christian, I believe that my life has meaning. And so every family, every, every person here, you've got the stories of the pain of the process that your family's maybe gone through. Maybe it's been, it's almost seemed like curse after curse after curse, but then there's also stories of blessing that have flowed through the family as well. It's in a moment like that that you have to really begin to, to think about what is the story that's going, that I'm going to propel forward for the next generation. I'm so thankful that there were slaves that were daring to pray under this kettle that it wasn't just a hopelessness that said, you know, it's never gonna change. The way it's been is the, always, the way it's always gonna be. They were daring to believe that if we pray, that something can change. You see what I'm saying? Like uh, on threat of pain and death, they were daring to believe that and giving themselves to pray and contending for the next generation. And so I was in a real searching moment after I lost my dad. And I spent the better part of that year um, trying to figure out like, who am I? Why am I here? Listen, that's a really good question to ask. It doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60. Like, that's a really good question to ask. Your heavenly father wants you to ask that question. Why am I here? What is, what is the story that I'm to tell with this life that you've given me? And so one of the things that became really important to me during that time was I wanted to find out what my family genealogy was. Now, that's kind of a weird thing. And I asked this question. How many of you have looked into your genealogies? And I've noticed that fewer and fewer hands go up. This is actually a large percentage for a room this size, but sometimes a room four times this size and you'll see two or three hands. I don't know what that is, but what that tells me is that we're losing stories right now. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? For some, why has that become not important to us anymore to understand where we've been and where we came from? And so I decided I wanted to find out where my family came from and that was hard because even though my dad was one of 16 siblings, we didn't know where our family came from. We couldn't actually get beyond my dad's grandfather. 
There had been courthouse fires where the records were lost. But more importantly, somewhere along the way, somebody just stopped telling the stories. And so by the time you got to my dad's generation, all 16 of them, no one knew where we came from. No one knew uh, uh, what our family history was. And so my dad would make a joke out of it. And he would say, well, we're just a bunch of mutts from Kentucky. They grew up on a, a tobacco farm in Kentucky, probably had 16 kids because it was a big farm. Needed slave labor. I don't know what it was, but anyway. But they didn't know where they came from, and he would make that joke. But, you know, it was, I knew it was a pain to his heart that there's something in you that just you want to know. Like, you, you search for meaning. Am I wrong? No. <clears throat> so I started searching, and I decided I'm going to get the breakthrough where no one else did in our family. And I guess what? I hit all the same roadblocks that everyone in my family had ever hit. Other family members had tried to look, and I got cousins on top of cousins, okay? And no one had ever been able to figure it out, and I couldn't either. And so I was ending that year more frustrated than I began. It's a very personal story, but trust me, we're going somewhere with it. It was during that time that I had a dream. Now, time out. We're talking about dreams tonight. Do we have any dreamers in the house? Okay, there's a few of you. I'm talking about the kind of dreams where you go to sleep at night and the God of the universe is speaking your language and it's not just pizza, right, that you had late at night. I'm talking about those kinds of dreams. I had a dream. I was not a dreamer back then. But I had a dream that came from somewhere else. It, it came from a, a, a different experience. It wasn't anything that bubbled up from the day. You know, sometimes you have dreams where it's just like, Everything you went through that week is just kind of like all hitting you at once. This dream came from somewhere else. Now, I won't go into the whole dream, but the Lord spoke to me about three things. Number one, he showed me that he wants to end abortion in America through day and night prayer. Now, that was significant for me because I didn't know anything about abortion. I, I'm just being very honest and admitting that to you that I've been a Christian most of my life, but I was content to just let some noisy people over there make make you know a stink about that but it wasn't important to me it wasn't what i was focused on can you relate to that can anybody relate to that listen i learned that just because it wasn't important to me doesn't mean it wasn't important to god and the same could be said of a number of things but anyway the second thing was i didn't know anything about prayer and everybody thinks they do until they got to lead a prayer meeting and you realize you don't know anything about prayer that lasts longer than three minutes okay the third thing was there was a man in my dream named Lou Engle, and I didn't know Lou Engle, but I spoke to him in my dream. And uh, the Lord began to speak to me through this, and what I found out in the days following that was that there was a real guy named Lou Engle. He was really doing this thing with prayer in America, and I felt like I needed to respond somehow, that I needed to do something with it. Can I just exhort you for just a moment here? Handle your dreams gently. Take care of them. Like, don't just discard them. Don't throw them away. I believe that many times the Lord is speaking. We don't even realize it. But handle your dreams gently. Put them on the shelf. If they don't make sense, they'll come back around. Amen. Receive that. That's, that's for somebody here. Anyway, so I felt like I was supposed to do something about this dream. And uh, I got the phone number of a man who worked with Lou Engle. And I called him. And I said, hey, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he goes, really? What was your dream? And I didn't expect that. I thought, you know, this is weird already. Like, this is like a sales call that 
not very welcome, right? But I, I, I said that to him and he totally took me seriously, which I wasn't expecting. But I told him the dream. He said, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what the Lord is sending us to do with a group of young people and we're going to Washington, D.C. to pray for the ending of abortion. And then he said this. He said, we're going to do a, a prayer gathering on Martin Luther King Day at the Lincoln Memorial. Maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. Well, if you're like me, you need, like, God to confirm it, right? You guys play that confirmation game? God, if you really want me to do this, then you have to show up. You got to tell me if this is really you. Then he does it, and you look at it, and you're like, well, if this is really you, I'm going to need you to do this over here, too. That actually happened to me. I was asking God for confirmation. God, do you really want me to take time off work, spend hard-earned money, and go across the country to go to a prayer meeting, right? And I was asking God for confirmation, and it was around that time that one night I was standing in my kitchen, and my uh, daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, she loved to read to her siblings. And she walked into the kitchen. She had a very strange look on her face. She was holding a book in her hand, and she said, Daddy, I think I found something that's important. I thought, what a strange thing for a 10-year-old to say. And I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Tell me what you mean. She said, well, I was reading this book to my brothers, and there's something in it. I think it means something. I think it's important. And I said, well, show me what you mean. And she gets out this Dr. Seuss book, and it's called Horton Hears a Who. You familiar with this book? And she shows me throughout the book, this line is repeated over and over, that a person's a person no matter how small. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what are you saying? That very night, I opened my email, and I, you know, I get these, like, email uh, blasts from, like, these, you know, uh, newsletter things. And it was this group that had put out a newsletter that very night, and it was a guest letter written by a man named Lou Engel. And he was talking about in this article how one of their group had had a, they'd been fasting, and they had a dream where God told them that he was going to take an old dusty children's book off the bookshelf and use it to galvanize a new generation to stand for justice. And it was the book Horton Hears a Who. It was that very day. Come on now, God's really good at what he does. This is, this is extraordinary. Like when you start, just take a moment and reflect. Like what, how many moments have you had like that where it just, you write it off as coincidence, but listen, it's not. There are no coincidences, right? And like Will said earlier, prayer is the path that, that, that opens this realm up to us. That when we pray, the coincidences actually increase in frequency. So I decide that's a good confirmation. I'm going to go to D.C. to go to this prayer meeting. My wife was pregnant at the time, so I decided I was going to take my 10-year-old daughter with me. And in the meantime, I got a recording of Lou Engle preaching, and he made this statement in this one message, and it just pierced my heart. I want to share it with you. He said this. He said, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it, and you'll hear your name called. Now, that's obviously referencing Moses, who had been tending somebody else's sheep for 40 years on the backside of the desert. And he's walking along, and one day, he has a God moment that's unlike all the other days. I don't think it was weird that Moses saw something on fire in the desert, do you? Come on, dry, arid environment, lightning, whatever it is. 
It's not strange that the bush was on fire. What was odd is that it didn't go out. I think this is very significant for us to understand that we serve a God who can light a bush on fire and it won't go out in your life. So what is the burning bush in your life that's been burning for days, weeks, months, years maybe? That God has put something before you. He's put a calling. He's put a destiny before you. And he's given you a choice. And we just keep walking past it year after year. Think about that. We don't know how long that bush burned for Moses. Long enough that he finally says, I got to turn aside to see this great sight. And it's not until then that God calls out to him and says, Moses. It's, it's, guys, that's the moment. You have to lean into those moments. They don't just fall out of the sky and hit you. You have to lean into those moments. So when Moses turns from business as usual, he leans into that moment, then he hears his name called. That really pierced my heart when I heard that. And so I decided to go to this prayer meeting, and I had one prayer that I prayed uh, in the couple of months leading up to it. I just said, God, I want to hear my name called. I'd lost my dad, was ending the year more frustrated than I had begun. I had asked big questions and I had no answers. And so finally, I was just like, God, I need to hear my name called. Can you relate to that? Have you prayed like that? God, I just need to hear my name called. Like, that's not a sign of weakness, folks. That's just an honest prayer. And we need to hear our Heavenly Father call our name. Amen? So I went to this prayer meeting. And uh, I actually brought a picture of it I want to show you. If you could put up the first slide. I'd like to show this picture. It's from 14 years ago. That's the Lincoln Memorial in the background. Pretty small gathering here. This is the moment when my life changed. If you uh, look on the left side of the screen, you'll see that blue sleeve, that arm that's extended. If you follow it all the way out to the end of the fingertips, you will see Will Ford. There he was. Now, isn't this strange that I was in a prayer meeting because God had given me a dream and Will was there because he had had a dream and we're standing. We met, the first place we came together was on the spot where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. And so we prayed that day. I didn't understand why we had to do it outside or why we had to do it for eight hours. But it was January and it was zero degrees. That part I remember. And that night we gathered at a local church and the guest speaker was Will Ford. He brought out this kettle and he told the story that you've just heard tonight. I'm listening, and it was one year to the day that my father had died, and I was a mess. And, and so much inner frustration going on with me, but I knew God was speaking. I knew I was supposed to be there. And I'm listening to this man talk about this rich spiritual heritage of his family. And here I don't even know where my family came from. I was a mess. I began to weep. And then he told the part of the story. It was actually the first time he'd ever said it publicly. But this kettle was handed down to Nora Lockett, to, or I'm sorry, to Harriet Lockett, to Nora Lockett, to Wilford Sr., to Wilford Jr., to Wilford III, the man standing on the stage. My 10-year-old daughter turned to me and said, Daddy, he just said our name. Now, what was my prayer to go there? God, I want to hear my name called. I had no idea that God would be that literal. That was pretty good. So I went up, met Will after the meeting, and we started to compare notes, and he said, you know, how did your locket spell it with one T or two? And we spelled it with two. 
He said, well, our locket spelled it with one. Where were they from? And I said, well, we don't know. We think Kentucky. And he said, well, our lockets were down in Louisiana. And it was just, you know, this amazing coincidence, but it was enough that we actually struck up a friendship and a relationship. And we began to minister together. See, God called me out of the marketplace. And I have been a full-time missionary in Washington, D.C. since 2005. But Will and I began to run together and do life together and lead prayer meetings all around the nation, anywhere we can, praying for revival in America, praying for racial healing in America, and praying for the ending of abortion. This is who we are. This is what we do. But along the way, God allowed us to build a relationship where, you know what? We just kind of are trying to love each other well. I fight for that man and his family. He fights for mine. I fight for his dreams. He fights for mine. I think that's kind of how this is supposed to work. You know what I'm saying? To spend years just doing life together. I really do think that's how it's supposed to work. Well, now fast forward. Uh, Lou Engle planted this house of prayer in D.C. And uh, it's called the Justice House of Prayer, praying for government as a primary focus. But it was at the beginning of J-Hop, is what we call it. At the very beginning, God gave us a dream that has marked us for life. And I want to share this dream because it's important to the story. In the dream, we were standing in a long hall that was lined with courtrooms. And the Lord spoke in the dream and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts or I will deal with it in mine. Now that's scary language. Agreed? That's pretty serious. At the end of this long hall, there was a huge courtroom and on the door it said Appomattox Courthouse. Now, do we have any historians in the house tonight? Who knows what Appomattox Courthouse is? Four or five of you. Okay, so time out again. I got to do a little American History 101. We fought a civil war. You probably knew that part. So it's March 1865, and General Lee is in Richmond and Petersburg, Virginia, with the Confederate Army. And the Union Army has put a siege on him, and they break through, and then Lee goes into retreat across the state of Virginia. And he's running out of ammunition, he's running out of supplies, his men are starving. But he gets to a place called Sailor's Creek and he literally gets stuck in the mud at that place. And it's there that he fought his last battle. And then three days later on April 9th, this is the date that we know, most of us know more closely. On April 9th is the end of the American Civil War. He signed unconditional surrender in the McLean Farmhouse at Appomattox Courthouse. So that's what Appomattox means. Now that's serious, folks, because now God who he sent us to, to pray for the ending of abortion, but he's saying, no, I need you to understand how serious this is to me. The same way that I felt about the shedding of the innocent blood of the African, that's how I feel about this. Now, that's, that's got a lot of weight to us. And so we've, we've handled that dream very gently because it's sobering. And we've prayed all these years, God, we don't want to go back to Appomattox. See, Appomattox represents the end of the bloodiest war we've ever known. The new estimates are that we lost 750,000 lives in that war. So you understand the prayer of God. I, we don't want to go back to Appomattox. We want to deal with this in our courts before you have to drive us to that. See, Lincoln understood it. We're in the land of Lincoln, so we've got to talk about Lincoln. Lincoln understood it. I can take you in that memorial right there, and on the north wall, it's etched in stone. Fondly do we hope, fervently, we, fervently do we pray that the scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills, 
that all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And if every drop of blood drawn by the lash be repaid with another drop of blood drawn by the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said again that the judgments of the Lord are righteous and true altogether. That's Lincoln, not May. The President of the United States understood that God's divine hand of discipline was on this nation because we failed to deal with the shedding of the innocent blood of the African. And he, and he understood that if God sunk the American economy, he was just in doing it. You catch that? That's Lincoln, not me. So there. So we've prayed all these years. We don't want to go back to Appomattox. Now fast forward again. Lou was going to do one of these prayer gatherings in Virginia. And he called me. He said, if we're going to do this, we first have to go pray at Appomattox. And so he, he flew into town, and we drove there. And we uh, went in the McLean farmhouse. You can go and stand in the room where Lee surrendered. We were there. And we prayed for the nation in that room. And then we left, and we went into a little visitor center there because it's like a historic preserved thing. We went in the visitor center, and there was a small bookcase. Will and I were, or I'm sorry, Lou and I were standing side by side. And Lou grabs the first book off the shelf that caught his eye and opens it to the first random page. And he's like, whoa, what is this? If you go to the next slide, I want to show you the page that he turned to. It's this illustration. It's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. Now, I don't know what this is. So I buy the book and I began to research the topic. What I found out is when Lee was in retreat, when he got stuck in the mud and fought his last battle, it was in the front yard of a family named Lockett, spelled with two T's. And I thought, what a weird coincidence. See how this works? You're catching on now. All right. So it was right about this time that we made this discovery that my brother, my older brother, he got the breakthrough on the genealogy. He found out what none of us have ever found out. And he called me and he said, I got us all the way back to 1645. We came in as settlers through Virginia, just not long after the original Jamestown settlement. And I said, Virginia? Well, I got a Virginia story for you. And I started to tell him this story about the Civil War. And he stopped me. And he said, that's not that place by Salish Creek, is it? I said, that is exactly where it is. And he said, yeah, I just found the documents on that. That was our family. So I'm thinking, wait a minute. You're telling me that after years of praying this Appomattox dream, that we're going to find out that the Civil War actually ended in my family's front yard. So you know what we did? We piled our team up in a van. We went out there. I actually have a photo of it. I want to show it to you. If you go ahead and go to the next slide. That's Lockett's Farm. It's been preserved from the day of battle. If we could get up close to that house, you would see it looks like Swiss cheese. It's just riddled with bullet holes. And uh, just so you don't think I'm exaggerating, there's a historical marker right there in the front yard that says, here Lee fought his last battle. And so uh, we took our team. We went out there. I actually met the man. He's a little amateur historian who lives there now. And, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he invited us in. And we walked in the living room. I was stunned when I walked in and framed and hanging on the wall was the locket genealogy. And I get up my brother's research. It's a hand in a glove. This was my family. And he says, how much do you know about your family? I said, well, not much. And he said, you know, some of you guys left here and went to Kentucky. It's about the only part I knew. 
And he said, some left here, this original homestead area, and went to the deep south, somewhere involved in very historical events. But then he said this, he said, some left here and went to Louisiana. And you know, in, in some cases, the, there was a clerical error in the, the handwritten ledgers, and the spelling of the name was changed, and they dropped one of the T's. And I was thinking, wait a minute. You guys with me? Okay. So uh, I, I'm, I'm stunned. I can't believe what, what this, the implications of what this means. And so, Will, why don't you come back up and join me, please, and share with them what we found out. Is that microphone on? Oh, right here, Bob. Ta-da! No, thank you so much. All right, so, so as you can imagine, so he comes, he flies from D.C. down to Dallas, where I'm at, and uh, starts telling me what he what he found out. And we we'd always kind of like joked about even like, okay, you know, what we kind of weird if your family owed my family kind of thing. We're just <laughs> nervous laughing and we go do something else. But he comes back, and I, I thought he was like actually kind of joking with me at first. But he's, he's seriously like, "I got to come. We have to have a serious talk." He said that we just kind of talked and prayed and cried, and just laid all this information out about his family and uh, where they came from and the parts of the country they went to. And someone went to Louisiana from Virginia to Louisiana. Well, in my family tree, I have a man named Isaac Lockett. I had a genealogist find this for me. Back in 2001, it's a man named Isaac Lockett, and in that census, 1870 census, he's 90 years old, and he's living there in Louisiana at the, at the plantation there in Lake Providence. But in that census, Isaac Lockett said he was originally from Virginia. The only Lockett's in Virginia at that time was, was Matt's family. And back then, slaves, if you, you know, if you know anything about it, slaves always took on the last name of the people who owned them. And so we're looking at that. Yeah, we spelled it well, one T, but then I saw in, in other references, in other sentences, I found a member, it was, it was spelled with two T's. So I'm like, what? So we poked more holes in this for three or four months. We actually poked holes in it for a year. And here's what we found through empirical evidence. Matt's family is the family that owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So think about it. Here's my family praying for the ending of slavery in Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the color of your skin, the family you're born into, the place where you live, maybe none of that's a mistake. They're there praying for the ending of slavery and then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then because it's the God of the past and the future, Mr. Poema says, I'm going to take two people from those same family lines and I'm going to weave them into this story and I'm going to use them to warn against injustice in their day and to cry out for awakening in their time. Because that's the kind of God he is. 
because he hadn't forgotten about the prayers of these people. He also didn't forget about the prayers of white Christian abolitionists during that time period. Isn't that powerful? All right, so. show you how even how, how intense this goes. There was another group of family members in Matt's family. Um, Napoleon Lockett and, and Mary Lockett. If you go to the next slide, there's two people in this portrait. That's, that's them, Napoleon and Mary Lockett. Napoleon was a colonel for the Confederacy. He was very high-ranking, uh, just aristocratic, sophisticated, southern, you know, like gone, southern male, like gone with the wheel kind of, kind of family, right? They're, he and his wife, these aristocrats. They own lots and lots of slaves, very, very wealthy. But listen, Mary Lockett didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she actually hired a designer, and she designed the very first Confederate flag, and she hand-sewed it in her house with her friends. In other words, she was the Betsy Ross for the Confederates. Right? And... Uh, she put together the very first, she came up with the idea for the Confederates to have their own flag and it became this flag here. Uh, go to the next slide. That's the old Confederate White House and that flag there is the, the flag that she designed, the stars and the bars. Right? It's still there to this day. But uh, out on the battlefield, the Civil War, they thought, well, this flag looks too much like the Union flag, so we need to have something a little bit more different on the battlefield. So they came up with this flag right here. That's the, of course, the Confederate battle flag. Well, listen, but because... God heard the prayers of white Christian abolitionists like Elijah P. Lovejoy here in, in, in Illinois and black, uh, black Christian slaves planting kettle pots all around the country through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in our country. Listen, next slide. The flag of surrender went up in their front yard <laughs> because of prayer, right? But then we... Uh, Studying this out for, well, we didn't study it, for a year and a half, we had to wrestle. Let's talk about that for a second. We had to wrestle with the whole thing that his family owned my family. All right, so we're in this wonderful prayer movement where we love confirmations and all that stuff. But guess what? All that little swirly, swirly stuff wore off. And then we got to the place where, hold up, this is real. Dude, your family owned my family. And I have a story about an uncle named Uncle Willie who was beat to death. Maybe by somebody in your family, overseer that was on land by your family. So honestly, now I understand why I had the white bag, black, black handles drink. I had more baggage I had to get rid of. I had to, from my heart, for real, not just a nice little prayer meeting where we sing Kumbaya and all ends. I had to do business with God and forgive Matt's family for owning our family. Because for the first time, I had a face associated with all those painful stories. And it was the face of a friend. And I was trying to, at this time, I'm trying to forget that my friend was ever my enemy for my family. Does that make sense? And so I had to do, we did business together, but, but I did a lot of stuff privately. And I forgave Matt's family in our release. And what, what was the wrestling like? With, what was it like for you? Well, you can understand probably that, uh, well, first let me say this. It wasn't the story that connected Will and I. Right. You, you, you get that? That we didn't find this out at the beginning. God let us pray together for a decade before he then lifts the curtain and says, let me show you something I've been working on for quite a while. And, and I, I understand that it had to be that way. Like God had to 
allow us to build a relationship to could actually handle a revelation like that. Right. You understand what I'm saying? And so, so you understand, like, this is a man that I love, and now I'm finding out that my connection to the story is to that of the slave owner. That was really, really hard. But, you know, for me, I'm so thankful God allowed this uh, curtain to go up on our genealogy, and uh, there, there was more. It just seemed like there was a treasure trove. Once the, the discoveries were open, it just seemed like it kept going. And so, yeah, we had slave owners there at the time of the Civil War, but I went back a little bit further. Go back to the Revolutionary War period of time here. So the First Great Awakening, all of that, that era that we're talking about, the late 1780s. God sovereignly led me to read this history uh, book, uh, The History of Methodism in Virginia. Now, I know we have met, uh, multiple pastors here. Do we have any Methodists or Wesleyans with us here tonight? Oh, I, I love the history of the Methodist Church. So I was reading this book, and it talks about how even though the armies of the revolution uh, were moving and everyone was in fear, this revival springs up in the middle of Virginia in spite of the war. And, it, and it's talking about the, the details of this revival, and then it lists the names of the men who were added to the Methodist circuit rider itinerancy. You've heard this term circuit rider before? These are the guys... They would get on a horse and they would carry the gospel to the frontier. Okay, so it gives the list of the names, and right there in the list is a man named Daniel Lockett. I get out the family tree; it's right there, right at the at the right time, right in the place where he's supposed to be. We knew he had been a pastor. We didn't know he was a Methodist circuit rider. Now, let me explain why that's important. At that time, this is the history of the Methodist Church. They had been inspired by the Quakers to stand against slavery. The Quakers were staunch abolitionists. Do we have any Quakers here tonight? No? Wow. Got immediately running here. <laughs> they were inspired by the Quakers, and so the circuit riders, it was actually forbidden. You could not own slaves and be a circuit rider. And so what you see is as men would join the itinerancy, they would actually set all of their slaves free if they had any. There's a lot of records of that. But here's the, what they would do is they would carry the gospel to the frontier. They had their Bibles in their saddlebags, but they also carried a thing called a manumission form. You know this term? It's a legal document that was used to set your slaves free. Now, how'd you like to be in that altar call? That you're, you're told about Jesus. You come to get saved, and then you're told that it's for freedom that Christ sets you free. And you get saved, but then you're also allowed to sign a legal document and set all your slaves free to come on. Now, this is exactly what we know happened because at that time in history, everywhere the circuit riders went, the population of freed slaves exploded. That's the power of the gospel to transform the human mind and to reshape American culture into what it needs to look like according to God. I love that. So we had a lot of wrestling to do, but as much as I had to repent for those in my family who had owned slaves, there was another redemptive thread that God was revealing, and he didn't let us find, about, find out about Daniel Lockett until another year later. We had to deal with the slavery stuff. Then God said, you know what? I started something even further back, and I want you to know about my son, Dan. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I choose that storyline. Yeah. 
I choose the storyline of the revivalist and the abolitionist. The story doesn't end with the slave owners. Do you understand what I'm saying? Isn't that powerful? So think about it. You know, yeah, my family, I have family members that have done stupid stuff, folks in prison. I've done stuff I'm not proud of. Thank God for the blood of Jesus, right? Yeah. Got these generational curses. You ever see like this divorce after divorce after divorce in the family or alcoholic after alcoholic after alcoholic, right? Drug after drug drug addict or whatever. But then you see generational blessings flow in the family. You see just amazing things, people prospering, you know, doing amazing things for the Lord, serving other people. That's generational blessings. But you know what those represent? They represent these dominating themes or storylines. And that's what God is shouting right now is this. What storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do we want to be a part of? So think about it. God will visit a Mephibosheth generation because he remembers his friends like Daniel Lockett or Isaac Lockett. <laughs> that makes sense? Yeah. Then we found out this, this other thing. This will give you one last example of somebody choosing a different storyline. So Will had mentioned earlier that during the time of slavery, that it was illegal to, for slaves to learn how to read and write. It was illegal for anybody to teach them how to read and write. That was just the law of the land. Well, guess what? After the war and after slavery ended, it still wasn't very popular, sad to say. And so the legacy of secret meetings continues in the form of former slaves trying to teach their children how to read and write. So now back to the Lockett Homestead, it's 1867, two years after slavery ended. And a mother, former slave, is trying to teach her young son, Robert, how to read and write. And they did it in secret because they feared the consequences. But in one night walks Lucy Lockett, one of my forebears, and she catches them red-handed in the act. Only instead of consequences, she said, no, what you've chosen to do is very wise. So she begins to give her assistance in tutoring Robert in how to read and write. Robert, Russ and Moten, he went on to great success. He actually replaced Booker T. Washington as the president of Tuskegee Institute. If you go to the next slide, please. In 1922, he gave the dedication keynote speech of the Lincoln Memorial, where 41 years later, Dr. King would stand on that spot and give the I Have a Dream speech. And 41 years after that, Will and I would meet on that very spot. God's really good at what he does. He's really good at it because he loves to remember. So think about it. This happened to two guys who were led by dreams to the Lincoln Memorial where Dr. King said this, I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners can sit together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't just poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the King of Kings who has a father who's going to answer his prayer because he prayed, Father, I pray that they will be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe he isn't getting up on Illinois because he still remembers Elijah P. Lovejoy. Maybe he hasn't given up on your family because he still remembers the prayers of his son, Jesus. Right? Stay to your feet, please. So, you go to the next slide. You know, Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves, sons of former slave owners, 
sit together at the table of brotherhood. We actually got the chance to share our story on a red hill in Georgia, a really important one called Stone Mountain. In that same speech, he said, let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain. Let freedom ring from the Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain. Why Stone Mountain? Because Stone Mountain is a place where the Ku Klux Klan was re, uh, rebirthed in 1915. It's the largest Confederate memorial in the world. But we went to that place and we met Pastor Mike there and listen, 20,000, over 20,000 people showed up for a prayer meeting to pray for, to, for, for God to send revival and heal the racial divide. Listen, God has caught y'all up in that same storyline. Next slide. Let me see the next, uh, let me see a stand in there in front of the, of that memorial there. So yeah, we have these memorials of pain, but we also have other memorials. And those memorials represent memories of the history of God's faithfulness. You have your own memorial stones. Remember that check that came in the mail when you wouldn't expect it? Right? Remember that doctor's report that the doctor was shocked and you were shocked and God healed somebody in your family or healed you and your family or whatever? Whatever that is, collect those things. You know why? Because that's what builds the altars for revival. Why do I say that, preacher? You go back and check it out. First Kings chapter 18. Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and the Bible says that he restored the altars of Israel. You know how he restored it? He grabbed 12 stones. He grabbed 12 stones remembering what God did for Joshua. And he's basically saying, God, the same God that part the Red Sea, the same God that part the Jordan River, the same God who fought our battle at Jericho, we fought our battles today. So he takes those old memories and he's saying, God, on these old memories, release a new fire for the next generation. And so the curses get broken and blessing gets released. I feel like we're supposed to pray into that, but here's what I want to do. I know we come to places like this and this, the Holy Spirit just kind of leading me to do this, man, but something gets, gets stirred up within you and within the side of you, you know that you have generations of hatred and bigotry in your family. Maybe you came out of it. Maybe you know you had, you had family members back there that owned slaves. We get that a lot. We don't deal with it all the time, but I feel all this privilege needs to deal with that. Family members are part of the Ku Klux Klan. Family members are part of the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam got started right here. Louis Farrakhan's over it. But it's a, it's a religion of hatred calls white people, blue-eyed devils, all that. If you know you have that junk in your family, especially for, for anybody that you know that yet slave ownership or the clan, whatever, in your family, and you want to say, I want to be the new steward of the storyline in my family. I want to break this junk off my family. I want to see generational blessings be released, and I want to stop the curses right now. Come forward. I want to pray for you. Come on up. Is anybody here? Thank you, Lord. Anyone else? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to break this off. Step up for me, man. As a son of former slaves, I just want to tell you, I forgive the sins of your forefathers. 
I forgive him for hatred. I will forgive him for bigotry. I forgive him for ill treatment that came down to people who didn't look like them, African Americans in particular, slaves if they owned them. I release forgiveness in the name of Jesus to you, your family, your offspring. And in the name of Jesus, I break the power of the withered hand curse. Because the Bible says, cursed is the man who trusts in the arm of the flesh. I break the power of the curse in your family where you begin things and things just wither up and dry up because there's a withered hand curse. I break that off of you. I break that off of your family. I speak freedom and release to you and your family in the name of Jesus. And I speak life to you. I speak dignity to you and your family. I say, God, release right now the redemptive purpose for which she was born into her family in the name of Jesus. And this is the 400 year, God, this is the 400 year slavery happening in America. 400 years ago, 1619, first slaves came to this nation through the Dutch. And God, just like in Israel, 400 years were up and all of a sudden you raised up a deliverer. God, I'm asking you in Jesus' name, let this be the 400th year where there's an exodus from division, where there's an exodus from racism, where there's an exodus from bigotry. In the name of Jesus, God, I pray for a great surrender to sweep again. God, I'm asking you for another great surrender to hit our nation. In the name of Jesus, God, I'm asking you for a forgiveness movement to hit in the name of Jesus. So that generations even yet to be created can praise you in the name of Jesus. Now, other people, you want to come up. Come up, let's pray. Let's begin to let's come up to pray and to contend for revival. Yes. Maybe it's other generational curses in your family. Yes. You want that stuff broken off? Come on up. Let's pray. Maybe you could be the one to be the steward of the storyline. Whether it's alcoholism, drug abuse, the divorce, or the divorce, or divorce, you want the generational curses broken. Come on up. Let's break this junk. Let's become the stewards of our storyline for our families, for this region, for the nation. Come on up. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to connect us yes. to your unfinished business. Yes, God. God, here we are at the 400th year. God, I know that you've started a good thing. Most of us don't know. We're not even aware of it, God. Maybe like Moses, we didn't even know that we were stepping in to a moment of unfinished business with you. God, I pray that you would connect us. God, even in this year, can we just pray this together right now? In this year, 2019, the 400th anniversary of the first slaves being brought to these shores. God, we ask, God, that you would connect us to your unfinished business, God, of redemption, God. God, a dream that you had in your heart, God. God, that you would connect us as a nation, but connect us as individuals, God. The unfinished business of our families. God, connect us to the unanswered prayers of our grandmothers and grandfathers, God, that still God, their prayers are alive before your throne tonight. God, we want to be the answer to those prayers. Connect us to your unfinished business tonight. 
Now, when we do these prayer meetings like this, sometimes it's, it's harder, sometimes it's easier, but listen, can we just lift our voices in prayer together here? Lift your voices right where you're at. Let's just begin to pray. Pray for your family. Let's pray for the nation. Whatever God is putting on your heart, whatever you're dealing with right now, let's just lift our voices. Begin to pray. Reveal the tapestry that you're weaving. You know, in Chicago, we didn't have slavery, but we, so many of our ancestors came out of poverty as immigrants. And in that place of poverty, people began to hate each other. You know, my, my family, my grandpa's history was that he joined the NAACP in 1918 after race riots on the south side of Chicago, where some black guys were swimming, kids were swimming on the beach that was an ethnic, a white neighborhood. And, and they killed these people. So it's not slavery. It might be rooted in jealousy and poverty. But I think God wants us to be, have the freedom to just ask God to forgive us for our sins in our land. Our sin may not be that it was slavery, but it's certainly plenty of hatred that runs in this city. And it goes back for generations. And so I would just say, let's just think for a second. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. We ask you to forgive us for the racism in our land. It may not be rooted in slavery, but it is certainly rooted in the desire to subjugate each other. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Where there's the haves and the haves not, we ask you to break that. Lord, there is one race, and that's the human race. We ask you to release that. Now, Lord, we bless those people. We bless. We ask for blessing on those people and the harm and the hurt that has gone before us. Lord, heal our hearts. There's some of you, you need to think of something. Somebody was robbed. Somebody was fired. Somebody was taken advantage of. I think God wants you to do a little business on just forgiving and getting rid of the baggage. So, Lord, we ask you. We ask you to come and to heal our land. Yes. From the wrongdoing, from the bloodshed that's gone before it, where it cries out over the injustice in our cities where it's north side versus south side, all that stuff, Lord, it's all divided. And Lord, we do not want to be a divided people. No more divide and conquer over your body. We ask you to release the unity that these brothers are sharing in the prophetic voice of this pot. Lord, let us, let your blessing fall on this land. Come, Lord, bless them. Bless those people who are different than me, that look differently, that think differently. We bless them, Lord. We bless those people. Maybe you need to come to the altar. Maybe you need to choose love over hate. Amen? First John tells us we need, to, we need to love one another. And I don't know, maybe it's even within your family unit. Maybe it's somebody else you have unforgiveness toward. I really believe we will not be set free until we are set free from any kind of hate. Amen? And I think we need to be interceding at this altar, too, not just for 
uh, healing of racism and, and loving one another and forgiving one another. But we really do need to pray about this abortion issue because it's eating up more. And if people actually get their way, they're going to start killing kids right up to the day that they could be born. And like Will was saying, they're teaching in Princeton that you should have the right to kill your child up to a year after they're born if they have a defect. So where's the church? This is why we need to just come to the altar. I'm going to have Ashley lead us in a worship song. So let's do business where we're at. Let's just cry out to God. And let's cry for love to overcome hate. Amen. Let's choose life over death. And let's let the Holy Spirit have his way. There's a calm that covers me when I kneel down at your feet. It's a place of healing. It's a place where I find freedom. There's a place my eyes can't see where my spirit longs to be it's a place of healing it's a place where i find freedom i'm gonna lift my Till I can reach heaven, I'm gonna shout your name. Till the walls come falling down, I've come to worship. I've come to Let's pray, if you don't mind. Let's, let's come together and let's gather around. Let's, somebody help me pull this down here, too. Just take it down there. It's not an idol, but it is a connecting point. It's a memorial stone. It's a good place to build an altar. Yeah, I got to ask to take the, the kettle to Korea. So why do you want me to bring it to Korea, South Korea? So you have to come, you have to speak on this specific day. And I get off the plane. Usually they give you a couple of days because they're like 12 hours ahead of you here. I had to come preach as soon as I got off the plane. So what's the urgency? They said, look, God used your kettle to bring, and the prayers underneath that kettle are a reminder of the people who prayed underneath it. And your civil war came to an end. And the walls came down. They said, we need the wall between North and South Korea to be broken. And your kettle gives us hope that our civil war can end too. It's this connecting point that God uses. It's not an idol, but can we come together right now to pray for the dignity of life?
the Lord spoke to me years ago. He said, William, the, the Libus test for authentic revival in the 1800s was the ending of slavery. Today, the litmus test for authentic revival will be the ending of abortion. In other words, that this thing gets so radically transformed in the hearts of people that people begin to, begin to value every life. Can we pray for that? It's like your governor here in this state, pray for him, but wants to enact this law that would have abortion happen all the way up to nine months. And it's not just for the health of the baby. That's already, that, that protection is already there for a mother. If, the, if she's going to, the birth is going to harm her physically, that protection is already in there too. Of course, you're going to choose the life of the mother. But this particular law will put in place a provision where for economic reasons, even for emotional reasons, a child could be killed when a mother's dilated. Governor in Virginia just recently said, well, even if the child is born, we could have the baby be pulled out and be placed in a comfortable place, wrapped up, and then the mother and the doctors can talk about what they need to do. It's hideous, it's heinous. But when the people that we cannot see in the womb become optional, I'm telling you it's inevitable. Many of the people that we can see will become marginalized and even eliminated. The dehumanization of human beings, that's what's going on right now. That's what you see all this stuff being thrown in the news with the blackface images. Why are people so outraged by it? Because it's dehumanizing African Americans. But in the industry, at the same time we're dealing with that, we're dealing with the dehumanization of the child in the womb all the way up to nine months. And in some Ivy League classrooms, they're actually teaching that abortion should be legal up to one year outside of the womb. So you see a little birth defect, you see a little Down syndrome, you see something you don't like about the child, kill it. We get to that place of devaluing life. Even we have all the scientific evidence to prove that life begins way earlier than that. The heartbeat starts in 18 days. The DNA of the baby is separate from the mother's in 10 days. Listen, this is craziness. So come on, let's pray into this right now. Father, we come before you right now. God, we dare to believe the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott. We said that the slave had no personhood in a courtroom. Roe v. Wade says that a baby has no personhood in the courtroom. God, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus, the same God who broke that, break it again through another great revival, we ask, in the name of Jesus. God, we ask you that you would do something in the hearts of legislators, that you would do something in the hearts of governors, senators, congressmen, even the president. God, the, the heart of the kings in the hand of the Lord. Turn it in the direction you wanted to go in. In the name of Jesus, God, we pray for their souls to be saved. We pray for their lives to be changed. But God, the we ask that you raise up leaders who are contend for life and life more abundantly regardless of the person, regardless of the class, regardless of the size. Lord, because a person's a person no matter how small. A person's a person no matter the color. A person is a person because you created them in your great glorious image. In the name of Jesus, God, we ask you, bring the revival that transforms hearts where we contend for the least of these once again. Make us a least of these nations. Make us a sheep nation and not a goat nation that contends for the life of the marginalized. 
that we will put our privilege at risk so that everyone would flourish. So that generations even yet to be created can praise the Lord. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to, before we end, I want to offer a perspective to what's going on right now. During the time of slavery, Charles Finney, he wrote a sermon called Hindrances to Revival. And one of the big hindrances, meaning the thing that will hold revival back, is he said, when the church takes wrong standing on matters of human rights, specifically he was talking about slavery. His point was this, if the church takes wrong standing on slavery, forget about revival. That was his point. But he said this in that sermon. He said that God is faithful and he, he will continue to drag this slavery beast out of its horrid den and exhibit it before the church and demand an answer, is this sin? And it says that the church is called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He was a lawyer. But I want to offer a perspective of what's happening right now. Isn't it interesting that the matters of the worst form of abortion, infanticide and racism, have been linked in the news in the last few weeks, and it's just hitting us in the face right now. Listen, I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think God is dragging this stuff out of its horrid den, and he's exhibiting it for us all to see just how bad it is. And he's demanding an answer from his people first. He's demanding an answer from the nation, but he's demanding an answer from us. Is this sin? And there's a whole massive segment of the church that just wants to be silent because they don't want to be political. This isn't political. Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't political. God is demanding that we confront the matters of abortion and racism right now. Amen? So be watchful. I want to encourage you, be watchful. Be watching for this. It's not going to go away. God is going to continue to bring this thing before us. And I want to encourage you to commit it to prayer in your church bodies, in your prayer groups, whatever it is, your home groups. Commit this to prayer and let's contend for an alternate ending to the storyline in America. And not be among those who are cowards and just think that it's because it's always been this way, it's always going to be this way. All I can think about are the slaves who prayed under this pot, daring to believe that the future could be different, that God could reveal a different storyline. Amen? And I think that's what God has had us connect to with this tonight. And we it demands a response from us, all of us, individually, and the different church bodies that are represented to commit to say, God, I'm going to be like that. Graft me into that storyline to contend for the destiny of this nation. Amen? Pots down here, it's for a reason. We really believe the prayers that were prayed by Will's family are going to make an impact today. Amen? And we know there's nothing magical about the pot, but we challenge you to come touch it and catch the fire and the vision of what God is trying to say today. And we know that it's just the Holy Spirit that's going to touch you. 
but maybe that's that point of contact, that's a physical contact that may ignite something inside of you know that there's a battle to be fought and we're the ones chosen by God to fight this battle. Because if we remain silent, who will stand up for the innocent ones? If we remain silent, then death is going to defeat life. And I don't know about you, but Jesus said, I am what? I am the resurrection. I am the life. He wants to bring life to this area, to the south side of Chicago. And that means we got to get fired up. Amen. That means we got to catch the fire and catch the vision. And so we're just going to have it down there. You can come maybe pray. Uh, maybe you need to say a prayer into that bowl for our nation. And then we're going to have some of the pastors on each side that are willing to pray for anybody that wants prayer. I know, Ed, you're willing to pray for people. Pastor Ed from Legacy, Pastor Justin over there, willing to pray for people. I'll be over here, pray for people. I know Pastor Wes will pray for people. And if you need prayer for anything, we're here to pray for you. Maybe we need to pray for boldness more than anything else. Amen? This is not the hour to keep silent. It is an hour to stand up for Jesus Christ and for truth. And if we do that, trust me, we will see revival, I believe, in our nation. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for this night. And Lord, we thank you that we are going to hover around the altars. We are going to not just rush away. And, and Lord, I pray that you would speak to each heart tonight about what is their story in this story. This is your story that you wove Will and Matt together, and then you wove Will and Matt into my life. And then you wove Will and Matt into everybody's life that is here. And that's not by chance. That's by your divine providence. And so, Lord, I pray something would happen out of this meeting for our city and the city of Chicago. And, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. One last thing. We're still going to pray. Buy their book. There's a lot of the stuff that they can't get to in their message. So go out and buy their book. Buy a couple of their books and hand them out to people who need to read it. Amen? They need to know that God is working his story into other people's story, and they can be part of the story. So the books are out there in the back. Grab a book. The rest of you, we're just going to open it up for you to pray. If you need prayer, just grab a pastor. Pastor Ed's up here. He flows very heavily in the prophetic, and he'll pray for you as well. I'll be over here praying for those that need prayer. Justin, Pastor Wes as well. Uh, we're all here to pray for you and let the Holy Spirit have his way. God bless. There's a love that lives in me for you, Lord, my Savior King. 